You're listening to Killer. This is case number 22, The Great Brinks Robbery, Part 2. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. McGinnis had been arrested at the site of a still in New Hampshire in February of 1954. Charged with unlawful possession of liquor distillery equipment in violation of internal revenue laws, he had many headaches during the period in which O'Keefe was giving so much trouble to the gang. McGinnis' trial in March 1955 on the liquor charge resulted in a sentence to 30 days imprisonment and a fine of $1,000. In the fall of 1955, an upper court overruled the conviction on the grounds that the search and seizure of the still were illegal. Adolf Maffey, who had been convicted of income tax violation in June 1954, was released from the Federal Corrections Institution at Danbury, Connecticut on January 30, 1955, two days before Maffey's release. Another strong suspect died of natural causes. There were recurring rumors that this hoodlum, Joseph Sylvester Banfield, had been right down there on the night of the crime. Banfield had been a close associate of McGinnis for many years. Although he had been known to carry a gun, burglary rather than armed robbery was his criminal specialty, and his exceptional driving skill was an invaluable asset during criminal getaways. Like the others, Banfield had been questioned concerning his activities on the night of January 17, 1950. He was not able to provide a specific account, claiming that he became drunk on New Year's Eve and remained intoxicated through the entire month of January. One of his former girlfriends, who recalled having seen him on the night of the robbery, stated that he definitely was not drunk. Even Pino, whose deportation troubles then were a heavy burden, was arrested by Boston police in August 1954. On the afternoon of August 28, 1954, Trigger Burke escaped from the Suffolk County Jail in Boston, where he was being held on the gun possession charge arising from the June 16th shooting of O'Keefe. During the regular exercise period, Burke separated himself from the other prisoners and moved towards a heavy steel door leading to the solitary confinement section. As a guard moved to intercept him, Burke started to run. The door opened, and an armed, masked man wearing a prison guard-type uniform commanded the guard, Back up, or I'll blow your brains out. Burke and the armed man disappeared through the door and fled in an automobile parked nearby. An automobile identified as the car used in the escape was located near a Boston hospital, and police officers concealed themselves in the area. On August 29, 1954, the officer's suspicions were aroused by an automobile which circled the general vicinity of the abandoned car on five occasions. This vehicle was traced through motor vehicle records to Pino. On August 30th, he was taken into custody as a suspicious person. Pino admitted having been in the area, claiming that he was looking for a parking place so that he could visit a relative in the hospital. After denying any knowledge of the escape of Trigger Burke, Pino was released. Burke was arrested by the FBI at Folly Beach, South Carolina, on August 27, 1955, and returned to New York to face murder charges, which were outstanding against him there. He subsequently was convicted and executed. So just to play a little bit of catch-up here, we have... Big Joe McGinnis uh, getting basically kind of shaken down for the still and, you know, they, they kind of suspected him. Then you have this whole thing with uh, Trigger Burke, the guy who tried to um, kill O'Keefe but failed. And he goes to prison and then makes an escape, like out of a movie. And then he ends up getting picked up later on in Folly Beach. And then eventually, you know, he gets sent to jail and and killed, executed. Uh, what did you make of uh, that little scenario? I mean, this thing plays like it was literally written in a movie. Yeah, I can't believe that there would be security that was so lax in the 
solitary confinement area that they were able to pull that off for one. Just look <laughs> crazy to me that it worked. Yeah, it was pretty, uh, pretty insane. I mean, you hear about people trying to escape prison, but I feel like we do a lot of these stories and it seems pretty common in some regard that people are escaping. Yeah, I was just reading back through some of what we covered there. There was a lot that we had to unpack there, but the the one guy, I believe, was it Banfield, said he was drunk for an entire month. <laughs> that was his al- <laughs> that was his alibi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the entire month of January he was drunk. Um which that's pretty funny. Yeah, they had some interesting alibis that all kind of coincided with right around that time, but you know, they're they're all a little bit uh suspicious, <laughs> you know. Right. And I'm assuming that Burke, when he was arrested by FBI agents at Folly Beach, that he was then convicted and executed. I'm assuming that's on another crime because he didn't kill O'Keefe. I mean, he shot him a couple of times, but that was attempted murder. He didn't. Maybe he was up on another murder charge. Well, yeah, that's what it says. He was returning to New York to face murder charges, which were outstanding against him there. So this happened in Boston. So Trigger Burke had some sort of outstanding murder charge against him in New York. In Boston, he tried to kill O'Keefe, got sent to jail, escaped, found in Folly Beach, South Carolina, then was extradited to New York to face the murder charges there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So it's not in relation to the to the uh, O'Keefe attempted murder. It's on something separate. During the attempted murder of O'Keefe, he was with another associate. That associate had since disappeared, leading many to believe he was murdered for being associated with O'Keefe. Many believe this weighed on O'Keefe, and he decided to confess in January of 1955, just a few days before the statute of limitations was to run out. He felt that his looming charges for other crimes would lead him to be incarcerated for a long time, and if he was released, he would be murdered. So he decided to talk. He had felt he had no choice. The following is a brief account of the data which O'Keefe provided the special agents in January of 1956 taken directly from the FBI's website. Although basically the brainchild of Pino, the Brinks robbery was the product of the combined thought and criminal experience of men who had known each other for many years. Serious consideration originally had been given to robbing Brinks in 1947 when Brinks was located on Federal Street in Boston. At that time, Pino approached O'Keefe and asked if he wanted to be in on the score. His close associate, Stanley Gascoria, had previously been recruited and O'Keefe agreed to take part. The gang at that time included all of the participants in the January 17, 1950 robbery except Henry Baker. Their plan was to enter the Brinks building and take a truck containing payrolls. Many problems and dangers were involved in such a robbery and the plans never crystallized. In December of 1948, Brinks moved from Federal Street to 165 Prince Street in Boston. Almost immediately, the gang began laying new plans. The roofs of buildings on Prince and Snow Hill Streets soon were alive with inconspicuous activity as the gang looked for the most advantageous sites from which to observe what transpired inside of Brinks's office. Binoculars were used in this phase of the casing operation. Before the robbery was carried out, all the participants were well acquainted with the Brinks premises. Each of them had surreptitiously entered the premises on several occasions after the employees had left for the day. During their forays inside the building, members of the game took the locked cylinders from five doors, including the one opening onto Prince Street. While some gang members remained in the building to ensure that no one detected the operation, other members quickly obtained keys to fit the locks. Then the locked cylinders were replaced. Investigation to substantiate this information resulted in the location of the proprietor of a key shop who recalled making keys for Pino on at least four or five evenings in the fall of 1949. Pino previously had arranged for this man to keep his shop open beyond the normal closing time on nights when Pino requested him to do so. Pino would take the locks to the man's shop and keys would be made for them. This man subsequently 
identified locks from the doors which the Brinks gang had entered as being similar to the locks which Pino had brought him. This man claimed to have no knowledge of Pino's involvement in the Brinks robbery. Each of the five lock cylinders was taken on a separate occasion. The removal of the lock cylinder from the outside door involved the greatest risk of detection. A passerby might notice that it was missing. Accordingly, another lock cylinder was installed until the original one was returned. Inside the building, the gang members carefully studied all available information concerning Brinks' schedules and shipments. The casing operation was so thorough that the criminals could determine the type of activity taking place in the Brinks' offices by observing the lights inside the building, and they knew the number of personnel on duty at various hours of the day. A few months prior to the robbery, O'Keefe and Gascoria surreptitiously entered the premises of a protective alarm company in Boston and obtained a copy of the protective plans for the Brinks building. After these plans were reviewed and found to be unhelpful, O'Keefe and Gascoria returned them in the same manner. McGinnis previously had discussed sending a man to the United States Patent Office in Washington, D.C. to inspect the patents on the protective alarms used in the Brinks building. Considerable thought was given to every detail. When the robbers decided that they needed a truck, it was resolved that a new one must be stolen because a used truck might have distinguishing marks and possibly would not be in perfect running condition. Shortly thereafter, during the first week of November, a 1949 Green Ford stake body truck was reported missing by a car dealer in Boston. During November and December of 1949, the approach to the Brinks building and the flight over the getaway route were practiced to perfection. The month preceding January 17, 1950, witnessed approximately a half dozen approaches to Brinks. None of them materialized because the gang did not consider the conditions to be favorable. During these approaches, Costa, equipped with a flashlight for signaling the other men, was stationed on the roof of a tenement building on Prince Street overlooking Brinks. From this lookout post, Costa was in a position to determine better than the men below whether conditions inside the building were favorable to the robbers. The last false approach took place on January 16, 1950, the night before the robbery. At approximately 7 p.m. on January 17, 1950, members of the gang met in the Roxbury section of Boston and entered the rear of the Ford stake body truck. Banfield, the driver, was alone in the front. In the back were Pino, O'Keefe, Baker, Faraday, Maffey, Gascoria, Michael Vincent Gagan, and Thomas Francis Richardson. Gagan and Richardson, known associates of other members of the gang, were among the early suspects. At the time of the Brinks robbery, Gagan was on parole having been released from prison in July 1943 after serving eight years of a lengthy sentence for armed robbery and assault. Richardson had participated with Faraday in an armed robbery in February of 1934. Sentenced to serve from five to seven years for this offense, he was released from prison in September 1941. When questioned concerning his activities on the night of January 17, 1950, Richardson claimed that after unsuccessfully looking for work, he had several drinks and then returned home. Gagan claimed that he had spent the evening at home and did not learn of the Brinks robbery until the following day. Investigation revealed that Gagan, a laborer, had not gone to work on January 17th or 18th, 1950. During the trip from Roxbury, Pino distributed Navy-type pea coats and chauffeur's caps to the seven men in the rear of the truck. Each man was also given a pistol and a Halloween-type mask. Each carried a pair of gloves. O'Keefe wore crepe-soled shoes to muffle his footsteps. The others wore rubbers. As the truck drove past the Brinks offices... The robbers noticed that the lights were out on the Prince Street side of the building. This was in their favor. After continuing up the street to the end of the playground which adjoined the Brinks building, the truck stopped. All but Pino and Banfield stepped out and proceeded into the playground to await Costa's signal. Costa, who was at this lookout post, previously had arrived in a Ford sedan, which the gang had stolen from behind the Boston Symphony Hall two days earlier. After receiving the go-ahead signal from Costa, the seven armed men walked to the Prince Street entrance of Brinks. Using the outside door key they had previously obtained, the men quickly entered and donned their masks. The other keys in their possession enabled them to proceed to the second floor where they took the five Brinks employees by surprise. When the employees were securely bound and gagged, the robbers began looting the premises. 
During this operation, a pair of glasses belonging to one of the employees was unconsciously scooped up with other items and stuffed into a bag of loot. As this bag was being emptied later that evening, the glasses were discovered and destroyed by the gang. The robber's carefully planned routine inside Brinks was interrupted only when the attendant in the adjoining Brinks garage sounded the buzzer. Before the robbers could take him prisoner, the garage attendant walked away. Although the attendant did not suspect that the robbery was taking place, this incident caused the criminals to move more swiftly. Before fleeing with the bags of loot, the seven armed men attempted to open a metal box containing the payroll of the General Electric Company. They had brought no tools with them, however, and were unsuccessful. Immediately upon leaving, the gang loaded the loot into the truck, which was parked on Prince Street near the door. As the truck sped away, with nine members of the gang, and Costa departed in the stolen Ford sedan, the Brinks employees worked themselves free and reported the crime. Banfield drove the truck to the house of Maffey's parents in Roxbury. The loot was quickly unloaded, and Banfield sped away to hide the truck. Gagan, who was on parole at the time, left the truck before it arrived at the home in Roxbury where the loot was unloaded. He was certain he would be considered a strong suspect and wanted to begin establishing an alibi immediately. While the others stayed at the house... To make a quick count of the loot, Pino and Faraday departed. Approximately one and a half hours later, Banfield returned with McGinnis. Prior to this time, McGinnis had been at his liquor store. He was not with the gang when the robbery took place. The gang members who remained at the house of Maffey's parents soon disappeared to establish alibis for themselves. Before they left, however, approximately $380,000 was placed in a coal hamper and removed by Baker for security reasons. Pino, Richardson, and Costa each took $20,000, and this was noted on a score sheet. Before removing the remainder of the loot from the house on January 18, 1950, the gang members attempted to identify incriminating items. Extensive efforts were made to detect pencil markings and other notations on the currency, which a criminal thought might be traceable to Brinks. Even fearing the new bills might be linked with the crime, McGinnis suggested a process for aging the new money in a hurry. On the night of January 18, 1950, O'Keefe and Gascoria received $100,000 each from the robbery loot. They put the entire $200,000 in the trunk of O'Keefe's automobile. Subsequently, O'Keefe left his car and the $200,000 in a garage on Blue Hill Avenue in Boston. During the period immediately following the Brinks robbery, the heat was on O'Keefe and Gascoria. Thus, when he and Gascoria were taken into custody by state authorities during the latter part of January 1950, O'Keefe got word to McKinnis to recover his car and the $200,000 which it contained. A few weeks later, O'Keefe retrieved his share of the loot. It was given to him in a suitcase which was transferred to his car from an automobile occupied by McGinnis and Banfield. Later, when he counted the money, he found the suitcase contained $98,000. He had been short-changed $2,000. O'Keefe had no place to keep so large a sum of money. He told the interviewing agents that he trusted Maffey so implicitly that he gave the money to him for safekeeping, except for $5,000 which he took before placing the loot in Maffey's care. O'Keefe angrily stated that he was never to see his share of the Brinks money again. While Maffey claimed that part of the money had been stolen from its hiding place and that the remainder had been spent in financing O'Keefe's legal defense in Pennsylvania, other gang members accused Maffey of blowing the money O'Keefe had entrusted to his care. O'Keefe was bitter about a number of matters. First, there was the money. Then there was the fact that so much dead wood included McGinnis, Banfield, Costa, and Pino were not in the building when the robbery took place. O'Keefe was enraged that the pieces of the stolen Ford truck had been placed in the dump near his home, and he generally regretted having become an associate at all with several members of the gang. Before the robbery was committed, the participants had agreed that if anyone muffed, he would be taken care of. O'Keefe felt that most of the gang members had muffed. Talking to the FBI was his way of taking care of them all. There's a lot there <laughs> to sit yeah. through. Um, so O'Keefe is in uh, FBI custody at this point. He's saying... Essentially, hey guys, I'm going to rat on everyone here because, you know, screw you guys. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting screwed and so I'm going to give it to you one last time. Um, 
and so he goes through and details the entire robbery. So I know we talked a lot about some of these details in part one of this case, but this is coming directly from the confessions of O'Keefe himself. And I considered them to be very, very factual, and I think the law enforcement did as well. I don't think he had any reason to really make any of this stuff up you know, at this point going forward. What did you make of of all of this after it kind of unfolded? Like what, what parts of this are you taking away and thinking like, holy cow? Yeah. Well, not only was O'Keefe basically giving them the middle finger because he thought he was being shortchanged and wasn't being handled as an equal partner in the crime. He he came right out and said, you know, if if they let me out of jail, I'm dead. So why not talk? He basically was trying to cover his own ass for what had happened because he didn't want to he didn't want to get out because he thought there were, it was an automatic death sentence for him outside of prison. So, well, yeah, and he'd already had three attempts on his life. I think he was pretty accurate in his assessment. Yeah, but the interesting part of that is I don't know how far the gang affiliation reached outside of just these guys that were involved with this robbery. I would think that once they go to prison, if they have any other associates that are already in prison or whatever, that a hit can be carried out inside the prison as well. So I don't know if that really was any advantage to him. You know, I I think like I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, this particular crime, I don't know that they were in the state of mind to go and, you know, basically air their dirty laundry amongst other people, you know, bringing more people in for whatever reason. I don't know the extent at which they would go to do something like that. You know what I mean? Because this was the Brinks robbery. It was the biggest score of all time. It was super high profile at the time. You know, do you really want to bring more people into this and make it even messier? Because it was already messy internally. So I think they really wanted to handle it internally as much as possible. Now, I know they hired Trigger Burke to come and take him out, but after that didn't work out, would you really want to do something to him on the inside? Yeah, that's true. Another thing I found really interesting was he decided to spill his guts. What was it? Just a few days before the statute of limitations was up. What had happened if he would have just stalled for a few days and then spilled his guts because they couldn't have, con- if it was a true statute of limitations in the, in the manner or the fact that, you know, they can no longer be convicted of the crime of robbery. He could have just served out the rest of a sentence for whatever he was picked up from before and been done with it. Yeah. 100%. You know, I think part of it was he was trying to, He knew the heat was on. He knew that they would find out. Uh, I'm willing to bet there were some charges that they would have been able to bring against this group regardless of the statute running out. Uh, If there's any lawyers in the audience, please feel free to give us some feedback and let us know, you know, what what isn't entailed in all of that. Because, you know, quite frankly, I'm no legal expert and I don't know. But the the fact of the matter is. This was a big F you to the rest of the gang, essentially saying, if you guys are going to screw me out of my money, I'm going to screw you out of yours. And here you go. Right. Yeah. It sounds like they were pissing away the funds anyways, too. Didn't sound like they were, the the score was being very well or, or safely capped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, in the truest sense of the word, I mean, they were putting the money up for his, his and Gascoria's legal defense, but what were they doing with the rest of the loot and- you know, who knows where that all went. Yeah. They did say that some of it had been stolen, but why would some of it be stolen? If it, somebody found 200 grand in the trunk of a car, I think they would probably took it all. They're not just going <laughs> to grab a couple bundles and hit the road. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> now we're going to talk about the indictments 
On January 11, 1956, the United States Attorney at Boston authorized special agents of the FBI to file complaints charging the 11 criminals with 1. Conspiracy to commit theft of government property, robbery of government property, and bank robbery by force and violence and by intimidation. 2. Committing bank robbery on January 17, 1950 and committing an assault on Brank's employees during the taking of the money. And 3. Conspiracy to receive and conceal money in violation of the bank robbery and theft of government property statutes. In addition, McGinnis was named in two other complaints involving the receiving and concealing of the loot. Six members of the gang, Baker, Costa, Geegan, Maffey, McGinnis, and Pino, were arrested by FBI agents on January 12, 1956. They were held in lieu of bail, which for each man amounted to more than $100,000. There were five remaining gang members that had not been arrested or indicted yet, including O'Keefe and Cascoria, who were being held in prison on other charges, and Banfield had been dead. The remaining two members, Faraday and Richardson, fled to avoid being caught. They were then placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list, and they weren't long for their escape as they were apprehended on May 16, 1956. FBI agents raided an apartment where they were staying in Dorchester, Mass., the pair allegedly rushed for three of their loaded guns lying on a chair in the bathroom of their apartment. However, they didn't make it. In their apartment, agents recovered more than $5,000 in coins. There was another arrest made for another associate of the pair. As a result of this raid, he was charged as an accessory after the fact. On January 13, 1956, as a cooperative measure, O'Keefe appeared before a grand jury as a principal witness. The grand jury returned indictments against 11 members of the Brinks gang. So as, I mean, as was predicted, you know, the entire gang just starts getting taken down and charged. Uh, not a ton of crazy stuff going on in there. Uh, it was kind of crazy, though, the way that the the last two guys get apprehended and, you know, they're going for their guns, but they don't quite make it. Yeah. It, I don't know what the, there, there wouldn't have been much fallout from that. They had the primary guys in the crime. They had them and they had bail set at what they said amounted to about $100,000 for all six of them. Yeah. I'm a little bit, I think the guys that got caught in that, that second part there that had the $5,000 in coins, I think they're the guys that got the shaft. They had to carry all the, all the coins. <laughs> all, the other, all the other guys had the cash and they got the heavy shit. Those guys were jacked carrying all that coin around. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty crazy. But, but, one thing in kind of untraditional killer fashion, we had everybody arrested and nobody died. We know that the you know the trigger guy got executed, but yeah, there, there's no no killer in the killer this week. Uh, and last week, you know, there's the attempted murder. Um, but we do say it is also a true crime podcast. So in that vein, this is true crime, and I wanted to go in a different direction. And I thought this was a really fascinating case. Yeah, definitely very interesting. I'm just waiting on that hate to come in on social media. Hey, you guys are talking about rape and murder and torture, and then you go to a bank robbery? What's going on? <laughs> or, hey, I want to listen to your podcast about rape, murder, and torture, but you guys say fuck too much. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's always my favorite one. Yeah. Or before we move on to this next this next section of the story, we just get the meh. <laughs> I hope we get a second meh after this part too. <laughs> Please. Can I get meh with two H's? <laughs> yeah, we, we don't want a meh. thumbs up. wonder if we could trademark that. We don't want a thumbs up. We don't want a thumbs down. We don't want a like or a dislike. We just want a meh button. I'm going to make a t-shirt and it just says killer podcast. Meh. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> and if there's anybody else out there listening that does a podcast, if you come out with a meh shirt... I'm just going to comment with meh. 
Actually, I'll probably be, <laughs> actually I'll probably be a little pissed off because that's a good idea. We should have kept that to ourselves. You still have control of the edit button. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> all right. Now we're moving on to the loot that was recovered. Even after all of the arrests and indictments, authorities still had not recovered the loot. As of January 1956, $1.2 million in cash was still missing. O'Keefe was unable to help authorities pinpoint where the other gang members hid their stash. The rest of the gang did not talk much, and, for all they knew, they could have destroyed the loot. In June of 1956, an unexpected development occurred in the case. Around 7.30 p.m. on June 3rd, a Baltimore, Maryland police officer was approached by the operator of an amusement arcade. He thought someone had just passed him a counterfeit $10 bill. The officer examined the bill and noticed it was a Federal Reserve note and in musty condition. The operator had followed the man who gave him that bill to a local tavern and informed police of his whereabouts. The man that was followed was a small-time criminal in the Boston underworld. He was questioned, and while the officer and the operator were talking to him, he reached into his pocket and quickly withdrew his hand again. Two officers watching the exchange noticed the maneuver and grabbed the man's hand, only to see a roll of money fall out of his hand. He was taken into police custody, and at the police station he was searched, and he was found to be carrying more than $1,000 and $860 in musty bills. Police called in a secret serviceman to inspect the money, and he found that it was not counterfeit. The hoodlum told officers that he had more bills in his hotel room and that he had found the money. He told authorities that he was a contractor in Boston, and while working on the foundation of a home, he found the bills in a plastic bag in April of 1956. The officers searched his hotel room and located... $3,780, and they determined that much of the money the hoodlum had had been stored for a long time. The bills were checked against the serial numbers of the known bills from the Brinks robbery. It was determined they matched. In total, $4,635 of the bills were from the Brinks robbery. The hoodlum was arrested and was later questioned. He told the FBI that he was a masonry contractor with another man on Tremont Street in Boston. He and his friend shared an office space with a man they knew as Fat John. On June 1, 1956, Fat John had asked him to rip up a panel from a section of the wall in their office space. When they removed the panel, Fat John reached in and removed a metal container. Inside the container, there were several packages containing bills wrapped in plastic and newspaper. Fat John told them that each package contained $5,000 and was good money, but they couldn't use it around Boston. Fat John then asked the hoodlum to pass $30,000 of the bills, and if he did, he'd give him $5,000. The next day, June 2nd, the hoodlum left Massachusetts and took $4,750 and began passing them. He had arrived in Baltimore on June 3rd and was arrested that night. Fat John and the business associate of the hoodlum were quickly apprehended the following day, June 4th, in Boston. The pair both denied knowledge of the loot that had been recovered. Fat John eventually admitted to knowing about the money and having given it to the hoodlum, and he also claimed knowledge of it coming from the Brinks robbery. The FBI immediately obtained and executed a search warrant covering the Tremont offices that the hoodlum claimed to have an office space in. The wall partition that the hoodlum said contained the money was located in Fat John's office. When the partition was removed, the investigators located a picnic-type cooler. Inside the cooler, they found $57,700, including $51,906, that was identified as the Brinks money. Both Fat John and the associate were arrested. The three men were charged with many offenses. Fat John received two years, and the other men were sentenced to one year. After his sentence was completed, Fat John returned to his criminal past, and he was eventually found shot to death in a car that had crashed into a truck in Boston. Also of note was that authorities found the contractor that worked on Fat John's office, and he stated that he worked on the offices in April of 1956. The loot could not have been hidden before that time, according to him. The investigation also revealed that the newspapers used to wrap the money in the, in the plastic, they were published between December 4th, 1955, 
and February 21st, 1956. Much of the loot was in various phases of decomposition. Based on the condition of the cache, authorities determined that the bills had been wet at some point. It was concluded the packages of currency had been damaged prior to the time they were wrapped in the newspaper. There were indications that the bills were previously stored in a canvas container, which was buried in the ground consisting of sand and ashes. Also found with their loot were mold and insect remains. Following this discovery, more than $1 million was still missing. That was really cool, like the whole story and the way that all shook out. Um, you know, like the fact that they ran into this hoodlum, that this one guy just happens to think he gets a counterfeit $10 bill and it leads to, you know, the discovery of several thousand dollars of this money. Now, I mean, $1.1 million is still missing at the end of this, but the fact that they were able to recover some of it was really interesting to me and, and kind of showing the way in which they hid the money. That, that was neat too. Yeah. And we alluded to in part one to the fact that we didn't know whether or not they had a way of tracing the bills or they had marked the bills or recorded the serial numbers, but it definitely sounds like they did. They had, they had a positive identification on most all that cash that they found and it came from the robbery. So yeah, even those bills were even marked. We, we didn't, we weren't for certain in part one, but now that's been confirmed. So that was pretty cool too. Yeah, that was really neat to know. Can you imagine how long that probably took them to do? 50 some thousand dollars in accounting for every single dollar and referencing that against the actual serial numbers? Yeah, they didn't have scanners back back in the day to run those bills through and automatically grab those serial numbers. No, that had to take absolutely forever. Now, most of those, are, I'm assuming, and maybe I'm wrong here, but if some of this money is like newer, it's probably in sequential order to some degree. So you might get like a hit of serial numbers, like run of, you know, so many thousand in a row that, you know, you just kind of can mark them all off in a row, even though it still takes forever. But could you imagine if they're not, <laughs> you have to sit there and sort all that money and go match them against serial numbers in a book somewhere. Holy cow. That would suck. That'd be a job that I would not want to do. No. It's interesting to talk about that, them thinking it was a counterfeit bill too. And I was just thinking about this the other day when I was younger money was like a standard format I don't know what proper uh, way to describe it is but it, the bills were a certain way for a long period of time and it seemed like as technology advanced and criminals got smarter and figured out better ways to to counterfeit money they had to start changing the format of the bill the style of the bill what the pictures were on there and different ways to try to secure the bills and um, I've noticed that here recently on the hundred dollar bills, they actually have a reflective strip on them. Now there used to be strips inside of the paper. Now there's strips on the outside. It's just crazy how much, what the extent to secure money is that they go to nowadays. No kidding. Especially when, you know, money is less used than ever physical paper money. You know, it's not traded as often. It's always, you know, debit and credit cards. Right. Do you think we'll get to a point in where cash and coin is no longer used whatsoever? You think it'll become completely digital at some point? No, I don't. I think there will always be some level of cash is king. True. There, there has to, like, I'm not sure. I mean, there there has to be some level where you're you're always trading bills at some level. The bank always has to carry the notes, you know. I don't know. I don't know a ton about money and, like, the major system as a whole, but I would imagine that m most money, you know, has to be accounted for by the bank. You know, if I tell them I put you know, a thousand dollars in my account. They need to have a thousand dollars there for my account. I, I don't know how that works. I don't know. Do you know how that works? No, I, I don't. 
I have no idea. Yeah, so who knows? I mean, they could maybe fib it all, and it could just become digital. It just It's just literally numbers on paper somewhere in a computer system. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's completely and totally possible. Like you said, I don't think it will ever happen, but it's feasible. Yeah, I. Th- it's interesting to think about. Maybe in the way, 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 way distant you know, future, I just don't think it's going to be any time in our lifetime that that happens. Yeah. I'd be pretty surprised. Well, not to stray too far here like we do sometimes. Um, I watched a documentary, and I don't even remember what it's called. It was a while ago, and it was on the the U.S. Mint where they actually make the money and press it, and the, just the amount of work that goes into making those dies and, and crafting those to print those bills, I, I don't re- recall off the top, but I want to say it takes like 18 months to make a new one, and this is a master engraver that's like doing this shit by hand on a block of silver. It was, <laughs> oh it, was God. it was insane. That's awesome. The the amount of effort that they go to to try to, to make that money as unique as possible. There's only one company that makes the paper. I think there was only one company that makes the die that goes into printing the bill. Then there's this, you know, this one master set of dies that they make for each level or denomination. And each of those dies takes that dude 18 months to hand carve or something Holy ridiculous cow. like that. I, I may be a little bit off, but it was something just completely crazy. Well, yeah, that's probably for traceability too. You know, if you only have one company handling it, one company doing it, it's a lot harder to copy it, a lot easier to track leaks. You know, if somebody were to leak out, like say the quote unquote recipe, if you will, you know, for right. whatever dyes they're putting in there. Uh, yeah, those people are probably under lock and key, you know, pretty tight. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's, it's the only company that makes that one type of paper in the whole world. I mean, it, it was, to me, it was very interesting. I know that some people was like, why would somebody watch something as boring as shit as that? But to me, it was kind of <laughs> cool. I was just blown away by they're in the factory, they're printing money and they're printing this money in sheets before they cut it. And it's like, yeah, it's just like a four by four pallet just stacked full of uncut hundred dollar bills. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. My father-in-law actually bought a sheet of uncirculated money. That's like that, and he framed it and put it on his wall in his dining room. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. What did he pay for it, though? If it's uncirculated denomination, the money has no real value. So I'm assuming that if it's a, no, sh- a sheet I don't, of- I don't know what he paid for, but it wasn't like you know street value for the bills that were in it okay. at all. And if you know him, he's pretty cheap, so that ain't happening. That's still a cool thing to have. No, that's sweet looking, though. Man, I almost wish I could get a bunch of those uncirculated sheets of cash and like wallpaper my office in them. If you could get them cheap <laughs> enough, that'd be awesome. <laughs> That's the most like 2000s rapper like <laughs> show of wealth I've ever heard. Fuck yeah, it is. And I'd get a gold grill <laughs> so you could see me on video when we do this podcast too with my cash money hanging on the wall behind me. That'd be outstanding. <laughs> yeah, Paul Wall. Yeah, Craig Craig Wall with his grills. That's right. <laughs> Holy cow. Craig and his walls and his bills and his grills. Oh, man, I'll start rating you some raps, dude. <laughs> Holy Jesus. cow. We better rein it back in. All right, let's wrap it up here. So the trial. The news of the partial discovery of the loot began to cause unrest for those awaiting trial. In July 1956, Stanley Gascorio was transferred from Pennsylvania to Massachusetts to stand trial. He was placed under medical care for weakness, dizziness, and vomiting. On July 9th, he was visited by a clergyman, and during his visit, he got up from his bed and slipped on the floor, hitting his head. Two hours later, he was pronounced dead, and it turned out that he had a brain tumor and acute cerebral edema. 
O'Keefe and Gus were good friends, and he was going to testify against him reluctantly. Now that Gus was dead, he had no qualms continuing on and testifying against the rest of the gang. There were now only eight members of the Brinks robbery gang that were left to be tried. On January 18, 1956, O'Keefe had pleaded guilty to the armed robbery at Brinks. The eight-man trial started on August 6, 1956 in front of Judge Felice Forte in the Suffolk County Courthouse in Boston. The defense tried to file motions to delay the trial. However, they were all denied and the trial began in front of a jury on August 7th. Over 100 people took the stand as witnesses for the prosecution and defense during September 1956. O'Keefe's testimony was the most important as he gave the exact details and described every man's role in the heist. At 10.25 p.m. on October 5, 1956, the jury met to weigh the evidence. In just three and a half hours, they returned a guilty verdict on all eight men. Sentencing was carried out by Judge Forte on October 9, 1956. Pino, Costa, Maffey, Gagan, Faraday, Richardson, and Baker all received life sentences for robbery, two-year sentences for conspiracy to steal, and sentences of eight to ten years for breaking and entering at night. McGinnis received a life sentence on each of the eight indictments, which charged him with being an accessory before the fact in connection to the robbery. He was not actually present at the scene during the crime. In addition, he received additional sentences of two years and two and a half to three years and eight to ten years for other charges. So that wraps up this week's case as far as the hard details go. Any final thoughts? Um, yeah. You need to, need to find a gang if you're going to lift $3 million dollars. You need to find a, a gang of people you can trust a little bit more. <laughs> That's my final thought. It sounds like these people all turned against each other in the end, and that was their ultimate undoing. The plan should have been to knock off all the guys except for the master planner, just like in Batman. <laughs> That's right. They should have. Uh, of course, this was, what, 50, 60 years before the Batman movie, but if they would have had just one guy that was the evil overlord and killed them all. He could have walked with the three million and called it a day. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I would. I just wanted to say, you know, this was a case that while there weren't any murders officially, you know, in this case, it was straight out of a, a novel or a movie. And the way that these guys executed on the, the robbery was, I mean, just something to be amazed by. If these guys would have put this much energy into doing something constructive for the world, imagine what they could have done. Instead, it was ripping off $3 million from the Brinks, <laughs> and uh, it didn't turn out so well in the end. No, it definitely did not. And I'd be interested to look up the ages of these guys, if any of them are still alive in prison. I'm assuming they're not, but it'd be interesting to see if any of them are still in prison. Yeah, I believe Pino's dead, for sure. Uh, I don't know about the rest of them. I never went and like digged around too much to see you know, if any of them are still alive. Yeah. I want to say... O'Keefe may have gotten out at some point, but that could be completely wrong. So don't hold me to that. Yeah. I'll have to do some investigation on my own side to see. It'd be interesting, interesting to know. All right. Well, that'll do it for us this week. And, uh, you know, we appreciate you guys listening. If you want to, you can stick around for a little while after this, uh, outro plays craig and i are going to stick around and do a little post show so it's probably some true crime some not true crime if you care to listen to us chit chat about whatever the hell we decide to chat about tonight you can find our facebook page at facebook.com forward slash killer podcast or you can visit us on instagram at killer podcast and finally you can visit us on twatter at killer underscore podcast we really don't do much on twitter to be honest with you um twitter is kind of a, a a 
shithole of social media cesspool. Also wanted to plug um, our support page through Anchor. So if you want to support the show in any way, if you want to donate as little as 99 cents a month to us for the content that we provide, that would be much appreciated. I know that Craig and I would just be ecstatic if, um, if you would do so. And thank you to those of you who already are. You guys are awesome. So with that, we are going to wrap up this week's show. Again, stick around for the post show if you're interested. Stay safe. Welcome to the Killer Post Show. You're here with Craig and David as we sit here and shoot the shit about whatever we feel like. Um, Hey, man. So, yeah, that was a pretty crazy case that we just covered. And uh, quite honestly, that was uh, it was awesome. Um, I really enjoyed that one. I thought that was just it was different. And um, I thought it was really cool. Yeah. And like we discussed during the during the, the rundown, a little bit different of a spin from what we've done here previously. A lot of our cases have been pretty heinous, torture, murder, rape. So this was a breath of fresh air to me. I liked it. Yeah, I I liked it too. It was just, it was really fun to write it, research it and do all of that fun stuff. But um, now we get to talk about something else, whatever else we feel like. So, um, you know, I was, uh, I was thinking, you know, I had said to you, Hey, uh, do you want to do a little post show? Um, you know, this week and you're like, yeah, sure. What do you want to talk about? I'm like, I really don't know. We'll figure it out later. But when I was thinking about it, um, you know, one thing I did want to talk about, which is sort of, um, you know, what is true crime related was there's been a lot of, uh, various true crime documentaries that have hit Netflix in recent months that, uh, have been pretty, uh, interesting to say the least. One of which was abducted in plain sight. So I know this has been out for a while and I'm assuming most of our audience has already watched this abducted in plain sight and i haven't watched it in a while so you know i'm not going to go give you the blow by blow here but what were your overall impressions of abducted in plain sight well i have a few (laughs) some of them it was a crazy case i mean i it's been a while since i watched it just like you said as well so i i don't recall you know every episode you know minute by minute but just the overall what happened in that case just it still blows me away and blows my mind that a a family of a young daughter teenage daughter would allow to happen what did happen and go along with this guy and b not only was the guy having an affair with his wife but he was also rubbing one out for him on the side too i mean it's just <laughs> but yeah <laughs> i don't i don't know what else to say that was seriously the craziest story I've ever heard. Like, I, I didn't even believe it. You know, like the way that this is going on, it just sounded completely made up. So not to mention, you know, the fact that this dude moved in, what was the name B, 
I think. And B moves in and he's like this dude who shows up and these people are all Mormons, by the way. I don't know if, you know, everyone caught that, but they are all Mormon. They all go to the same church and do this, you know, whole thing. And then, so B moves in and he's like super nice and he grooms the daughter and then he grooms the father and grooms the mother and he's banging the whole family and and telling the girl that aliens are going to come and like do all this crazy shit if they don't have a baby and oh my god that i mean that that was one of the most effed up documentaries i've ever seen in my entire life yeah and the the daughter who was the victim at the time was she was like 14 right who who at 14 believes a bullshit story like that? We have to complete the mission. We have this mysterious box in the middle of the night next to my head with weird voices coming out of it. I mean, oh, what the fuck? I can tell you. I can tell you who. <laughs> Murder the Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Alex fucking Jones. <laughs> That's who. <laughs> wonder if this was some of his family. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> oh, man. I never really thought about that, but what if it is? What if Alex Jones is related to the family that got fucked by B, and Alex is just like this uh, illegitimate bastard child of B out here running these conspiracy theories? I'm, I, let's run with it, dude. We'll start it. Because he was born of a conspiracy theory. The conspiracy theory was if he didn't bang, or the, if the girl didn't bang B and have his kid, the mission would fail. So. That's right. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. So that that was uh that was a an episodic event that I I'm not sure I'm happy I partook in that, but at the same time it was so unbelievably bad in a good way. I just I don't know. When the moment that heard that the dad says that he jerked off that dude in the car, I was like, Count me in. I need to know what the hell happens the rest of the way. Like yeah. that was like <laughs> As soon as that happened, I, I needed to know more. <laughs> I needed to know how did this happen. Well, I actually had to roll it back when I saw that part because I was like, did he just say that? He needed some relief? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a hand. Give me a hand, buddy. <laughs> I really need some relief. I have all this pent-up frustration. Yeah. Uh, if you said that to me, I would punch you in the nose and then be out of there. That'd be the last <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, if you're like, hey, dude, uh, I need some relief. Can you, uh, can you help me out? Be like, yeah, I'll knock your ass out. <laughs> <laughs> That's about the relief you're going to get. It'll be a relief to you if you wake up after this ass beating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Wow. You'll be relieved that you're not dead. Uh, yeah, that would, uh, oh, man, that was, <laughs> like, I still can't. I just, no. It brings back so many memories and thoughts all at the same time that I, I just can't even, I just can't get them out. <laughs> yeah, it was, like you said, I don't know if I would even recommend that documentary to anybody. I mean, it was interesting in how it played out and it was... Oh, I recommend it 100%. I recommend this documentary because it's so fucking nuts. <laughs> and it's nuts in such a strange way. It's not like nuts in like a grotesque way i mean it is gross but you know what i mean like the story is it just continually escalates like another level like you're watching and you're like this is just weird and then it's just like oh and oh wow (laughs) you know and you just keep going through it it's like jesus it just got to that point of is this real or 
how is this even real would be the question I was asking myself. That's, I thought it was just like totally made up, you know, like there's no freaking way that this, this went down this way and these people were all involved and we're not all getting, you know, scammed here on some story, but man, yeah, it was, it was real. Um, the other one that you and I both watched was the Ted Bundy tapes. So give me your take on that one. Um, for me, there wasn't, I mean, there was a lot of new information there that I learned along the way because I really had never studied the Bundy case in great detail. But I actually, when all of that shit went down, I was still pretty young, but I still remember a lot of it from news reports when he was getting arrested and things like that. So I lived some of it personally from, you know, the media standpoint at that time, which the only media we had at that time was the news, what they were reporting. But I mean, I thought it, it was well done. I think it was sensationalized a lot. I mean, he was a very heinous serial killer, but you know, I, I think they, I think they beat a dead horse a lot with his case. Yeah. So I wasn't that impressed to be honest with you. <clears throat> there wasn't really a whole lot that came from that in which I was like, Oh wow. You know, this is like some great revelation of something or other. Like, I don't know. It just seemed like, I don't, it seemed like why to me, honestly. Yeah, I, I think the craziest thing for me was something that I didn't know. I mean, I, I knew of his arrest when it happened back in the day, and I remember his execution and all that stuff that they were talking about on the news. But a lot of the finer details about his, you know, his past life I thought was interesting. You know, his college, when he got out of high school, went to college, and he got real involved in the political scene, and then things went south from there. But it was... It, he was very interested in that in that one girl that he was dating for a while, and then that kind of went south. And it kind of had the kind of that overtone of the Golden State Killer that Bonnie did Joseph James D'Angelo wrong, and he went off on a tangent and just went completely crazy. I'm not saying that that's what started his you know killing spree and rape and you know ransacking, but you know Bundy had a similar incident where somebody broke his heart too. Yeah, and you know, it, it, it is glamorizing these people, like a lot of what we're doing and a lot of, you know, the true crime documentaries, you know, they do kind of glamorize these people and you have to admit that and be honest about it because it does in a way. Um, I, for one, am fascinated by the fact that these people can go out there and do these kinds of things and then act like normal, you know, like Ted Bundy did. Then you have the guys who do it and they're just complete maniacs. It's just crazy, like the the broad spectrum and what in the ways that these people can behave while simultaneously being killers. Like the that's the the psychology of a killer is very fascinating to me. So that's kind of why I can go and read and research this stuff while having zero tendencies in that you know in that regard. Like I have like no anger issues. You know I'm not like that at all. And so that's part of what really fascinates me by, you know, about these people. Yeah, for sure. I've watched, have you watched any, this is, well, it's kind of a documentary of sorts too, but have you watched that? Um, I think it's on headline news channel. They have the new episode that's called very scary people. They've had a couple of decent episodes on about some of these guys on there. No, I haven't. I've only been able to watch a couple of the episodes, but the, they did cover Manson and, everything that he did. And I can't think of some of the other one. <laughs> Eileen Warnos, she was the, she's a pretty famous female serial killer. Yeah. I did see something about that, but I, I never actually watched it. I don't have 
proper cable anymore. So I don't really watch a lot of the stuff that comes out on like the regular channels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have proper cable anymore either, but luckily YouTube TV still has headline news and some of the other ones. So I still get to watch forensic files and all those shows. Yeah, I don't, I don't have anything right now that's like a, any type of like cable subscription. I had DirecTV now for a while and then I got rid of that because I wasn't watching it. And yeah, pretty much watch Netflix and listen to podcasts and radio. That's about it. Yeah, that's cool. Well, there was one last thing I wanted to touch on before we wrap up, and that was the finale to Game of Thrones. Oh, this is completely random. Yeah, this is not in the uh, in the vein of serial killer podcasts. Where are you at with the way that this this season ended and, and the series ended for that matter? Um, I liked the second to last episode much better than I did this final episode. I kind of already had predicted that Daenerys was Jon Snow was gonna kill her. I didn't know how it was gonna play how it was gonna play out after he did that. But, you know, all of the epic characters that died the week before like the Hound and some of those other those other characters. I thought it was a better episode. Yeah, the Hound died in a way that was pretty cool. The rest of everybody died in weird ways. Like I don't know why they only decided they were going to do 6 episodes because this season should have really been two se- two seasons. It should have been the season where they prepare and fight the Night King and then they should have had the last season be where they prepare and fight Cersei. They should not have done this in this really rushed and convoluted way where it was like so boring for two episodes then they battled the battle was shot terribly it was too dark it was really hard to see i agreed with a lot of those complaints um like the battle was pretty meaningless because like it was taking place before the battle for westeros you kind of knew they weren't going to kill anybody super important because you know they were going to go fight cersei and that was going to be way more important and I mean, the biggest thing that happens is like that dragon gets killed and like they act like nothing, like no one cares. <laughs> one of the two dragons goes down and it was like, no big deal. Um, we got another one. And uh, so I thought that was pretty interesting. The all the like the characters that have been created and developed for so long, you know, they were like really cool and like you get attached to them. And then like when they died or something major happened to them, like I felt like it was, it was kind of a letdown. And I don't know if it's because you're watching it knowing that it's ending. So you watch it a little more critically than you would if you were just watching, like knowing it was just another season. Um, but the way that they wrapped everything up all at one time, you know, for everybody, cause they had to, cause they were ending it was a little bit, you know, lame. Uh, I was a little let down by the way that it all went down. I think it was just rushed in general. It felt like everything was too quick. Like you said, it could have been two seasons. The The battle with the Night King and all of the dead, that that should not have been taken place and, and finalized in a 90-minute episode. <laughs> well, what, what was the point? The, like, they built up to Winter's Coming since the very first season, you know? And then, like, you get to this season eight and they're fighting the Night King at the very end. But, like, who is the Night King? Why is he there? Why does he control this dead army? Like, what's the whole point of this thing? Why Why do they even exist? I still don't have an answer. Yeah, and basically at the end of the day, they're a bunch of fucking icicles. Arya stabs them and they're, they're all gone. <laughs> yeah, it was just, like, the most bizarre thing. I thought for sure, like, there would be some kind of plot twist at the end where the Night King comes back or, like, 
Brandon Stark's the Night King and like he never dies and then like they just start growing the army again, you know, after everyone kind of settles in in Westeros after everything like the, you know, the dust settles. There's so many ways they could have spun the ending of that show that would have been so badass and they just failed miserably to do anything cool. They did manage to give Starbucks a free advertisement, probably save them a <laughs> billion dollars in advertising costs. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So the, I don't know. I mean, I I'll be like the first one to tell you. I am not the biggest Game of Thrones fan. I jumped on board I think last summer and binged all the seasons knowing that the last one was coming and I watched them all. I thought it was a good show. It was entertaining. I liked it. It's not my favorite show by any stretch. It's probably not even in my top 10 favorite shows, but I'm not a huge like sci-fi fantasy guy like I don't know. I, I draw a really strange line with like sci-fi movies. Which you'd think, like, being the fact that I'm a giant nerd and I work in IT for a living, like, I'd be all over this stuff, but I'm not. Like, Star Wars, eh, it's really terrible, to be honest. It doesn't do it for me. Like I And I think with Star Wars, I started watching it when I was, like, way older. Like, the first time I watched it, I was in my 20s or maybe just hit 30. And I was late 20s. It's the first time I watched Star Wars for the very first time watched the, the the first the original trilogy it was so cheesy i couldn't get over it you know because it came out <laughs> came out in the 70s right i mean this right it makes like i understand it right but i'm watching it and i'm just like this is so lame on so many levels this is so lame yeah i i think it lost a lot of its allure with the generation gap because as everybody as we've stated time and time again i'm a, quite a bit older than you and i remember going to the theater and watching those when they came out. And they were probably badass when they came out, In the out, late right? 70s. And yeah, exactly. I mean, I was a little kid, but I still remember that. And to me, I was just blown away because I'm this little kid seeing this stuff happen on a movie screen. Living in that fantasy world of a, of a younger child, it's just like completely and totally amazing. And that's what I'm saying, that generation gap. I think the original three... Uh, I don't know. Probably get a lot of hate for this, but I think they should have just stuck with those three, called it a day, because the rest of them have been pretty shitty. I liked, I did like the reboot, like when Disney first bought them and created the very first one. I forget what they called it, because there's so many of them now. New Hope or something like that, yeah. Yeah, and I thought it was good. Like, it was entertaining. But then, like, I started watching Solo. Uh, my wife and I were watching Solo last night. I was so bored. I was so bored. And and it's not that like it was bad. It's just, I'm just not that interested. And she turned to me and she, I told her this. And we had this, a little bit of this conversation last night where I said, I think it's just that I didn't start watching these movies until I was so old. And they were, and they were so old that the effects were so bad that it was like a B movie, you know, and at the time when it came out, it was sweet, but I didn't watch it then. And I wasn't a little kid anymore, you know, and I, I watched it in my twenties and I thought, well, you know, okay. I mean, I see why people like it. And I'm not going to knock it and say like, Star Wars is the worst thing of all time. It sucks. It's just not for me. And so I I was, you know, talking to her about it. And then she goes, well, you like Guardians of the Galaxy? I'm like, yeah, I do. I mean, you have a point. I do like Guardians of the Galaxy. That, that movie's sweet. But it's different, though. It's like not a serious movie is what it is. Guardians of the Galaxy, there's a lot of humor and joking. And it's weird. And it, it's got, like, cool music to it. You know, they play like a lot of 70s and 80s music in it. Right. And it's just got this different vibe. Star Wars is, like, dead serious. Like, trying to be, like, so serious. And, like, 
I have to turn the freaking subtitles on so I understand what the hell they're talking about because they'll start saying names of things and they're just like the strangest names I've ever heard. And I don't know if they're like, if I'm just not understanding them or if it's something bizarre, like, you know, they got the weirdest names for people and planets and stuff. And are you talking about a planet? Are you talking about a person? I don't know. I need to read what this says because I'm an idiot. So uh, here we are. So I don't know. No, Guardians of the Galaxy has more of a comic book spin to it. It, Star Wars is straight up sci-fi. And you have you'll have the purists that say that it's the greatest of all sci-fi series ever. Then you'll have people on the other side of the aisle saying no, it was Star Trek. They get the Trekkie heads in there that are yeah going around raging. They're going around with their raging Spock boners, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just not I'm not that into it. It's not my thing. So I don't know. I don't. I'm not a big sci-fi person. I don't know why. Like horror movies are fantastic they're the worst movies ever made like they can be the cheapest crappiest movie you've ever created and i'm like yes and then star wars and it was like the super budget like visual effects it was like uh, you know for its time it was like the thing and i'm just like meh i'm like that guy on youtube meh yeah (laughs) Uh, meh (laughs) i have a feeling that's gonna stick around for a while (laughs) meh yeah Go ahead and give me a meh on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> uh, man, if I get a shit ton of people saying meh to me on, on Instagram, I'm going to lose my mind. Pull my fucking hair out. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of with you on the sci-fi movies. I liked them because I, I came into them a lot younger, and they were super badass when they came out in the theater for sure. But I, I'm I'm like you. I'm a little bit more into the horror movies. So we're we're definitely gonna have to do a post show where we talk about our favorite horror movies and what we like about them and stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I know I've professed my love for the Halloween series a million times on here, so we can talk about that. We can talk about all the various other different horror movies that I've watched. I watched I watched quite a few of them. Um, and we were joking earlier, you know, we'll have to do a a podcast on Beavis and Butthead <laughs> because we were watching the old episodes of that not too long ago and. Um, I, I don't know. I have the strangest taste in entertainment. <laughs> I realize, probably, you're, you might be the only other person that has a similar taste in the things that I watch. Like the pattern, I don't know. It makes no sense to almost everybody else. Yeah. But no, I, I'm totally down for a Beavis and Butthead podcast. People will probably say, like, these guys aren't serious at all. Look at these asswipes. What are they doing? <laughs> I think that's the point, right? It's not to be serious at all. It's to talk about it, and <laughs> there, there's I don't know that there's anything serious we can talk about with views and butt it <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> oh man, it's such a good show. There's so many good quotes and stupid stuff. It's so so good. But from a cartoon standpoint, Beavis and Butthead, Beavis and Butthead broke ground for lots of shows we watched today. I have a feeling that I'd have to do a little bit of research. I'm not sure when Adult Swim came to be, but I'd have a feeling that that's the, like the starting point for most any and all Adult Swim shows that are out there, animation wise. I think you could argue Simpsons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Simpsons isn't anything. Like, you go watch Simpsons, you're like, whatever. But in its time, I mean, there were people trying to ban the Simpsons from TV. Yeah. When it first started. So I think I'd go with Simpsons first, then Beavis and Butthead. Beavis and Butthead was more of like the run of like really raunchy, like on purpose, dirty adult cartoons, you know, like, and then South Park behind it. Right. And South Park took that ball and just ran with it. Yep. And they're still running. 
And, and so are the Simpsons, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. They've been on forever. Um, but yeah, I I I really like the Beavis and Butt. It's really funny. Like when you go back, it's you have to like stupid humor. If you don't like stupid humor, then you're gonna be like, "This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life," and I wouldn't blame you because it is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. But it makes me laugh. Yep. I laugh at really stupid shit. So same here. And and real quick before we shut this down for the night, true story. And I think it was 1991. I would have been my junior year of high school. I got kicked out of school one day for wearing a Bart Simpson t-shirt that had a swear word on it. <laughs> they sent me home. So <laughs> wait, wait, wait. What? What is that? I don't even remember. I'm. I think it might have said something like, "Hey, my 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 name's Bart Simpson. Who the hell are you?" And they sent me home for that. They said you can't wear that to school. 1991. I was uh, four. <laughs> I was gonna say we're even born yet. <laughs> 87, baby. Man, I'm fucking old. Yes, sir. <laughs> I was driving and causing trouble in 1991. And I'll leave it at that. I don't want to get too personal. I here. was probably still <laughs> shitting my pants. <laughs> But yeah. Oh, hypothetically, well, I was shitting my pants when I got sent home from school because I figured I was going to get in serious ass trouble. But yeah, whatever. I don't even think I ended up telling my mom about it. Your shirt didn't say eat my shorts? No. They probably would let me stay in school for that one. You think so? Said, said the <laughs> hell word. H-E double hockey stick. Go home. Stitz line. Can't wear that to school. <laughs> oh, man. That's so funny. Well, that'll do it this week. Um Everybody else, we'll see you next time. Feel free to hit us up with your take on uh, anything we talked about in the post show. So how you felt about these uh, true crime docs we talked about and or Game of Thrones finale. What were your thoughts? Hit us up. Let us know. And we may read your comments next week. All right, everybody.